All right, so we're up to Acts chapter 2. This is, this is a big one here. So review from the prior lesson as Adam filled us in. This is a continuation of Luke's gospel and a little bit of overlap at the time of Jesus's, between time of Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension. So he preaches, speaking about the kingdom of God for a period of 40 days. He's bodily resurrected to sit at the right hand of the Father in fulfillment of prophecy. And two angels tell the apostles... That, why are you looking up in the sky? He's coming back the same way that he departed. So this is pointing to the second coming of Christ, which we're still looking forward to. And since Judas had killed himself, as Adam reminded us, yes, as, as 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 he committed suicide, the apostles selected a replacement to bring the number back up to 12. Matthias is chosen by Lot. So now we turn our attention to Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, and there are two groups of Christians who are really focused on Acts chapter 2. First group I think of is the Pentecostals. This is the day of Pentecost, so this is, this is a big one here. Focuses on spirit coming down, baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. The other group, which is probably a little more representative of the group here, is people from Restoration Movement background. So Acts, Acts 2.38, favorite scripture in the churches of Christ. Okay, talks about a baptism. For those of us from Restoration, Stone Campbell movement, certainly very familiar with that. So you have the beginning and the end of the, of the chapter about, uh, of Acts. But I think that actually there's some wonderful treasures in the middle between those two parts that I want to focus on over the next couple of lessons here. Uh, there's some, some wonderful things that, that, that have been overlooked by many people so in the past. So I want to pick it up here. Uh, just a little background for this from Luke 24 and Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1, the background for Acts chapter 2. So Luke chapter 24, uh, starting verse 47, Jesus had told the apostles, repentance and remissions of, of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so he told them, you're my witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you've been endued with power from on high. So this is the instruction that Jesus gave. Stay in Jerusalem. You'll be endued with power from on high. This is about to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And then let's pick it up in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> says, being assembled together with him, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is, so this is what Jesus says is going to happen. Again, to wait in Jerusalem, the promise from the Father is going to be given to you, and you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit many days. Now, I'm reminded of what Jesus said also in John 14, 15, 16. He said, it's necessary that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. This is the plan that he has to depart for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus has just, has just ascended to heaven, and the Holy Spirit is going to come down now. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. I'm reading from the... Uh, New King James. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing of a mighty wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? How is it we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they're full of new wine. So uh, the apostles were gathered together in Jerusalem in a house. They hear the sound of a violent wind from heaven come down, fills the house. Tongues of fire appear on each of them. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages and other tongues with an ability that's given by the Holy Spirit. And then, on the background here also, is there. this is the day of Pentecost, and there are Jews from all over the world who were gathered together in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And the people, the Jews who were there from all these other countries, hear this strange sound around the house. They gather around where the apostles are, and then the people hear them speaking in their own native languages from the different places where they came from. And so this is a miracle, and the people are confused by this. So that's, that's basically that's the basic review of the, the events. Now, recently we studied through Leviticus, and, and there are a lot of there are some tools that we can pull out of what we've learned before to help us to better appreciate what's going on here. One of the things we talked about just a few weeks ago from Luke, Leviticus 23 was the story about the calendar of feasts and special days during the year. And all of these feasts and special days have importance that would be fulfilled later on, over a thousand years later, for through Christ and the church. And remember the story of the Passover... That, that's foreshadowing the death of Jesus. He, he is the lamb without blemish who was selected, uh, sacrificed at twilight. The blood of the lamb saves the people from death. And then the people eat a memorial meal of the flesh of the lamb after that. And then after the lamb is slain, they have the, the feast of the unleavened bread. So they have to get all the yeast out of the house for the next seven days. And this is, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 12. This was all, the Passover was all foreshadowing what Christ did. He was the Passover lamb who was slain. And now that the lamb has been slain, we have to get all the yeast out, all the sin out. And, and those who didn't pull the yeast out were to be expelled from the community. So he's using that to talk about how they're going to deal with, with sin in the church. Because that whole story in the calendar, with the Passover had to do with Jesus. And now we have the next festival is Pentecost which we also talked about a few weeks ago in Leviticus 23, verses 9 to 22. It talks about that. 
And there were two parts to the Pentecost festival. It's also known as the Festival of Weeks. goes by a few different names. And it's marked by the first sheaf of grain of the harvest. First of all, that's the first part, as they mark the, the very beginning of the harvest of grain. And then the second part is uh, seven weeks and one day later. That's why they call it the Festival of Weeks. Week is a seven, so it's seven sevens later, plus one extra day, which turns into 50 days. And the, the, word, the word Pentecost is just basically a Greek word for 50. It sounds just like that. So that's where it comes from. Um, so it's the Festival of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. So it was originally... Uh, it was closely associated with the harvest. Originally, it was 50 days after the first sheaf of grain. However, as you can imagine, that would vary from year to year. You know, depending on the rain and the sun and everything else, that could, that could move around the calendar quite a bit. So eventually it got fixed to 50 days after the Passover feast. So this is it. So Jesus, for 40 days after the Passover, is teaching the apostles. Then he ascends, and how we are... Ten days later on the day of Pentecost. Um, and the whole idea of this being associated with the beginning of the harvest, there's an obvious parallel right here. Why would God choose this day as the beginning of the great spiritual harvest? I think of the scriptures that Jesus talks about, the spiritual harvest that he's looking forward to. In Matthew 9, he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. So Jesus sees the world as a great harvest field, and he asks that we pray for laborers, and obviously we need to be laborers as well. I also think of the passage in John 4. Do you not say four more months and then the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. He's saying it's harvest time. Right, so... So the idea that the Pentecost was the, the feast that is celebrating the beginning of the harvest. So this is not a coincidence that the church is founded on this particular day. And of course we got all these other people saying up there drunk of new wine. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, another important thing, Exodus 23, we discussed this when we're going through Exodus uh, within the last year or so. In Exodus 23, it says there are three feasts of the year when all of the male Jews, no matter where they are in the world, are supposed to come to Jerusalem. And one of them was, one of the three feasts was the Passover, and the other one of the three feasts was the Feast of the Week. So why are there Jews from all over the world, from all these countries, gathered together on the day of Pentecost? It's not an accident is because that's exactly what it says they're supposed to do in Exodus 23. Now this was given, keep in mind, that commandment was given 1,400 years before, before this event. So God had set this up centuries beforehand that all the men would have to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast which would mark the beginning of the, of the harvest. Okay, so God is orchestrating this. The calendar is setting up. It was it was a prophecy of what's going to happen in the future. So they're gathered together in Jerusalem. It says devout men from every nation. So these are the religious Jews who actually want to follow the 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 commands of Moses. 
And notice the places that they're coming from. This goes way beyond the Roman Empire. A lot of times in, in your back of your Bible, it, they'll have a little map and it'll say, well, here's where Christianity spread in the beginning. And there's this little ring around the Mediterranean, which is basically the Roman Empire. Okay, On day one, the church goes way beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. These are people from the Parthian Empire in the east. They're people from per, with per, different parts of the Persian Empire. So these are from these are from Asia. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. Um, the people think of the Christian faith as a as a Western religion, but the first people who are mentioned here are all Asians, and then the the uh, the, the Persian people. I was reading recently about talking about uh, the uh, the evangelization of China and the Far East, and it says that they, the the Chinese people referred to Christianity as the Persian religions. So the Persians took the message further east along the Silk Road into China, ultimately. So Parthians, Medes, and Elamites; these are people from the east, from the Persian Empire into Asia, who would uh, uh, their their descendants would be evangelizing Asia. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, that's the land where Abraham was from, which would be Iraq today, in the Middle East. Uh, those from Asia Minor, it mentions different parts of Turkey, which would be to the north and to the west of where they are. And then from Africa also, it talks about Egypt, Libya, and Cyrene, which are all in, along the northern part of Africa. Visitors from Rome, so now we're getting into Europe, okay, the, the Roman from the, the, the heart of the Roman Empire, the Arabs, people from Arabia are there too. So there are people from all over the world that right on day one, you have Europe, Africa, and Asia being evangelized. So he tells the disciples, go into the whole world, but he's going to kickstart everything by bringing people from all over the world there to Jerusalem to start everything. And it just happens to be on the festival marking the harvest. Okay. Um, Acts chapter 2, let's continue reading in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So, okay, the day starts at 6 a.m. It's only 9 in the morning. Mm -hmm. All right? Uh, verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a, it's a lengthy quote. Peter's saying, look, you're not, people are not drunk. This is fulfillment of a prophecy that was given hundreds of years before through Joel. And depending on which Bible you have, it's either Joel chapter 2 or Joel chapter 3, but that's exactly what it says there. I will pour out my spirit. So he's saying this is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit just as it said that the, the, the Spirit will be poured out onto all flesh. 
that it would happen in the last days. So this is this is the sign that this is these are the last days from what Peter is saying here, and it will be accompanied by prophecy, wonders from heaven, and signs on earth. And then he concludes, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question comes up: Well, what does that mean? Call on the name of the Lord? Well, you have to wait. You have to, we'll, we'll, you have to wait for the rest of the book of Acts before we uh, before we touch on that. But that's a it's an obvious question. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? So what follows here are uh, six. Peter start, follows with six prophecies about Jesus. And you look, you look in your Bible and you look in your footnotes and you say, well, I only see two here. Well, there are four that are hidden in the text. Yeah. So it assumes that you... It's, Peter is assuming you know the other four. He doesn't have to quote from them, but he's alluding to them. So we're going we're gonna to talk about the first of those prophecies, the first of six prophecies that Peter hits here. In Acts chapter 2, Starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he, after that, he goes into uh, quotes uh, uh, Psalm 16. After that, so Peter builds on what the people already know. He says, "All right, you know about Jesus, men of Israel. You know about Jesus of Nazareth." Uh, a man attested by, uh, to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So the people he's talking to, they're Jews from all over the world, but he's addressing them as if they're all from, all from Jerusalem or at least that they were around when they saw these things happening. So that's he's speaking to the crowd as, as, as if they're all Jews in Jerusalem there. And... Uh, he says he's attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did in your midst as you yourself know. So he's saying basically, look, you all know about Jesus. You all know he performed miracles. And you all know he was killed. And then he's going to say, what you don't know is that God raised him from the dead. And he's going to demonstrate that by Eyewitness, by eyewitness testimony, and he's going to demonstrate that by fulfillment of prophecies. So he just said, well, we've just seen one prophecy here fulfilled by the Spirit being poured out, but there's another, there are several other prophecies that have been fulfilled as well. So Jesus, even by those who killed him, was known for as someone who had the ability to do miracles. Uh, I was reading a book recently called uh, a friend of mine. I think I mentioned this this earlier. A friend of mine uh, I went to high school with, known him for over 50 years, and he read a book called Zealot, which is basically a demolition of the Christian faith. Uh, very poorly written, 
There's a lot of obvious, obvious, blatant false statements that are in there, which if somebody's familiar with the history of the Christian faith or the Bible, they could take it apart. My friend wasn't, and so he was kind of rattled by the book. So he sent it to me and said, Chuck, can you, can you take this, this book apart for me? And uh, so I'm in the process of reading through it. And one of the things that, that I found kind of, kind of interesting in here is that the, the author of the book, who's not a Christian, will, will call in. He has his own cloud of witnesses that he will call in from time to time to back him up, with, especially when he's making a really weak point. Okay, so his witnesses are the scholars. Okay, All scholars say blank, or most scholars say blank. And so one of the things that I'm reading through here, he says, well, you know, most scholars say that Jesus didn't actually perform miracles. So they say, well, Jesus existed. Maybe he was crucified or maybe he wasn't. But, but all the miracle accounts, they really didn't happen. This is what the scholars say. And you know how the scholars come to that conclusion? You know, Peter was on the ground. Peter says, look, you all know he performed miracles. All right, he was killed. But he, you know he was a miracle worker. Um, the reason, the, I'll tell you how, they, how the scholars come up with that. They look around, they look out their window, their study, and they say, man, I don't see any miracles happening around me, all right? I don't see any, I don't see miracles happening, so I guess they just don't happen because I don't see them happening. They don't happen. So therefore, whenever I'm reading in the scriptures and I run into a miracle, it probably didn't happen. That's about as deep as it goes, okay? It's not, that's what the scholars do. They'll look, and they'll look at the scripture, so every time they run into a miracle, they get the red pen out and basically cross it out. Virgin birth, no. Water into wine, no. Walked on water, no. Fed thousands of people, no. Healed the dead, no. Uh, cast out demons, well, maybe. You know, maybe he's an exorcist, something like that. But then basically, all the miracles get X'd out by, by the experts. And so they get a panel of experts together. Okay, raise your hand if you think Jesus performed this miracle. Nobody raises their hand and say, well, okay, we let's take that one out. That's, that's basically, that's about as deep as it gets, Okay. And so the implication is, when he writes in this book, well, the scholars almost universally agree that these ne things never actually happened, and none of these miracles ever happened. Then the implication is, well, you must be some kind of an idiot if you, some kind of an uneducated uh, person who doesn't respect the scholarship and doesn't respect the science, if you're some superstitious person, if you believe these old outdated myths. That's, the, that's basically the implication here, is what's your problem? Because all the experts are agreeing with this. But Peter on the ground said it happened, and even the opponents said that it happened. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. One was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and, and mute, and he healed him. So the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doesn't cast demons out by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. They didn't say he didn't perform a miracle. They just said he's using the dark powers to perform these healings. So even his opponents admitted that he was, he was performing miracles. And I like in, in uh, Luke 23, when Jesus is brought before Herod and Pilate, and Herod actually wants to, wants to meet him. So, whoa, this is the miracle worker. Maybe he'll do a miracle for me. <laughs> and he had, look, are you the son of God or king of God or king of the Jews? Luke 23, verses 7 and 8. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. 
for he desired for a long time to see him because he heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. So even the enemies thought, wow, he, this guy this guy can perform miracles. He's, he's doing something here. And that's really, it was raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for, I think, four days. That's what really set things into motion for the point where the Jewish leaders thought that they needed to kill him because he's too powerful. He's, he's performing miracles. It's obvious. And we have to put a stop to this. So you can't cut the miracles out of the story of Jesus. You can't cut the miracles out of the Bible. You do that, there's nothing left. Okay, there's no point, there's, there's no such thing as a Bible scholarship which is cutting the miracles out of the Bible. Uh, now, my background, I come from a, I would say, a very strong science and math background. I'm, I'm into logic, my, uh, my, by trade I'm a water engineer, and so, and, and, and I deal with water treatment. So actually, in my real life, in my, in my day job, I'm dealing with physics chemistry, organic chemistry, physical chemistry, uh, you know, electromagnetic. I'm dealing with real stuff, and I have to design things that work, and I have to work with, well, I don't know how to design it. It's, I work with the experts who know how to design it and know enough to put the, put the pieces together. But that's what I do. And, and I think in college, the bane of my existence was fluid mechanics that, that, because it's a very hard subject for me anyway, but it's basically what happens with water, Okay. Uh, you know, if you want to pump it up, what happens? If it's falling downhill, what happens? How fast it goes? All the, all the things having to do with water, it's hard. Okay, I'll just let's leave it at that. Fluid mechanics is hard, um, and so when when it talks about uh, Moses crossing the Red Sea and there's a wall of water on each side, okay. First thing you learn in fluid mechanics is water always flows downhill. It doesn't stand up in a wall unless you've got a wall that's holding it back or it's frozen. Okay, that doesn't happen. Jesus walking on the water. Okay, or the story of Elisha with the axe head that floats on the water. These things don't happen. Turning water into wine. Does not happen. Doesn't happen. All right? Uh, throwing, throwing a piece of wood into some water that you can't drink and all of a sudden it becomes drinkable. That doesn't happen. I mean, I'm a, I, I design water treatment plants, so I know all this stuff. These things don't happen. Okay? The only reason I believe all of those things actually did happen, although I know the science behind all of these things, it's one simple principle. When the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 shows up and tells Mary that She's going to, through her, a prophecy that is a thousand years old is going to be fulfilled. And she's going to have, she's going to give birth to the great descendant of David, the king who's going to sit over the, on the eternal throne. Mary, Mary has a minor objection. She says, excuse me, I'm a virgin. I've never known a man intimately. And then the angel comes back to her and he gives her the reasons why she should actually believe these things. And then he closes with... One of my favorite lines in the Bible, he says, for nothing will be impossible for God. Okay? And Mary, un getting that, understanding, nothing is impossible for God. When she grasped that, behold the maidservant of the Lord. You know, that, that, that's it. She, 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 she completely turned herself over to God because she believed anything was possible for God. She believed what the angel said. Okay? 
The problem with all of these scholars who are out there is they have no idea who God is. They have no idea who they're dealing with. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence. This is the God who created all the laws of the universe that I have to follow when I'm designing water and wastewater infrastructure facilities. Okay? He created all those laws. Well, guess what? He can suspend them anytime he wants to. He can break them, rewrite them, suspend them because he's God. He can do anything. Nothing is impossible for God. Amen. First thing you need to understand when you read the Bible is the God of the Bible is he created the universe, spoken into an existence, is before all things, is beyond our understanding, and nothing is impossible for him. If Jesus rose from the dead on the third day in fulfillment of the prophecies, that's two massive miracles. One is that he rose from the dead after being dead for three days, okay? Clearly, publicly, obviously dead. The second miracle is that this was all prophesied about hundreds of years before he was born. Two massive miracles. So there are miracles all over the scriptures. If that if God can raise, if God can do anything, God can raise Jesus from the dead. He is the Son of God. If He's the Son of God, He can do anything. Believing those all the other miracles, including the virgin birth, takes zero faith on my part. Now run into people, very highly educated people, Christians from time to time over the years, over the last forty years. I run into Christians, and once in a while. People who, even people who are, who are Bible teachers, who go around teaching other people, and they'll be open with me and vulnerable. And they'll say, sometimes I hear, sometimes I hear somebody say, you know, sometimes I have to admit, I don't talk to many people about this, but I struggle with intellectual unbelief. Okay? And I look back at them and say, I have never in 40 years ever struggled with that. Okay? I know too much. Okay? If you understand who God is and you see God working through the scriptures and all the prophecies that have been fulfilled, I just don't struggle with that. If, if I ever leave the faith, it would be because I fell into some stupid sin of the flesh or something like that. You know, God, God, you know, I, maybe God strike me dead before that happens. All right. But, but if I were to abandon the faith, it wouldn't be because of intellectual unbelief. Two things you've got to understand. One is who God is. That's first thing you need. Second thing you need to understand is who Satan is. All right, because a lot of people, the other thing, people who who believe in God, they don't understand about Satan. And so, every time something horrible is going on in the world, they start they pin it to God. Okay, so it's two things you got to understand right off the bat. You understand to understand who God is. Okay, and, and for starters, nothing is impossible for God. And then who Satan is? That he is he's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. And he's out to spread destruction throughout the whole world, including in the church. Okay? Two things you got to know. So, let's continue here. So, do I have a problem believing all these miracles? No. Peter said, Peter told the people there, you all know that Jesus is performing miracles. The only thing you don't know is that he rose from the dead. And so he quotes and alludes to several scriptures. And then in... Uh, in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses. So this is the apostles. He said, we're all eyewitnesses. Okay, this, this is, 
you know, prize fighting, you know, and obviously, okay, I don't go to prize fights, but this is, you know, I understand the principle of a prize fight. You get two fighters in the ring, and then, you know, every once in a while there'll be a, some legendary fighter who, who, who the underdog is going up against, and the underdog hits him with a one-two punch. It's a combination. He, he, he sends him back, really, with the first one, and then he hits him with the second one and drops the guy on the canvas, and he's out for the count, and the fight is over. This is the, the one-two punch, the combination. The one-two punch in the beginning in the scriptures is the eyewitness accounts and the prophecies. That's it. This is what Peter preached. Jesus raised from the dead, seen by eyewitnesses in fulfillment of the prophecies. This is exactly the same message, the same approach that Paul took in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First few verses there. Okay? This is it. Okay? You want the secret to evangelizing the world? This is how they did it in the beginning. No reason why we can't do the same thing today. Let's continue. Let's look at the first prophecy here. This is a, a deep and rich prophecy. Start, let's back up in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David said concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced. My tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he'd raise up the Christ to sit on the throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So uh, let's... let's uh, Let's pause right there. So Peter's argument, he quotes from Psalm 16 and the Septuagint, number Psalm 15. And, and, and the line that he focuses on here is, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David says, you won't leave my soul in Hades. And Peter says, look, David has been dead. We have his tomb here. David died a thousand years beforehand. Okay, so obviously his, he's been dead a long time. His body has seen corruption. He says this prophecy could not have applied to David himself. That's what people assume. He says, well, David's writing it. He says, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let your, your Holy One see corruption. He says, no, it had to be the one who came from the body of David this is referring to. Logically, the son of David, the promised Christ, the one who would sit on the eternal throne of David. That's what he says. This is. We'll talk more about those prophecies uh, uh, next time, but... In, in Psalm 16, that's the point that Peter is making. Could not have applied to David. It had to be applied to the seed of David, the son of David, the Christ, the Holy One. So, uh, Paul, in, in 
In Acts 13, in Pisidian and Antioch, Paul quotes the same verse, makes the same point, but he, he takes a little different route to get there to explain that. We'll talk about that later. So, uh, this psalm here, uh, Peter is reading from the Septuagint. Okay? Septuagint, Masoretic text. Some people know what I'm talking about. Some people don't. <clears throat> the uh, Masoretic text, Hebrew scriptures, most modern Bibles are based on them, and the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew text that we have are maybe a thousand years old, roughly, round numbers. 1,000, 1,200 years old, something like that. So, uh, In the beginning of the church, they used the Septuagint. Septuagint was a translation into the Greek that was made about 200 years before the time of Christ. It was made by the Jews, uh, by, the, by, the Jewish, by the Jewish Bible scholars in, in Alexandria. It was, it, was, it was translated into Greek. And when the apostles are quoting the Old Testament it's almost always quoting from the Septuagint. And sometimes, sometimes the, the two are so similar, you can't tell the difference, but sometimes there are slight differences, and sometimes there are bigger differences, and you can tell when, when, when you can, by comparing the two of them. Um, I'll give you an example here. In, uh, he's quoting, he says, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 26, it says, Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Okay? That's exactly what it says in the Septuagint. In the Masoretic text, it says, therefore my heart my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. So he's saying, well, that's kind of similar, but it's not the same. Uh, in, the, in the New King James, if you look back here, it will say, uh, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices for, for Psalm 16, verse 9. In the New American Standard, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices. Some of the translations, like the, the NIV, they use the Masoretic text, but then they'll fake in the Septuagint where it varies from, the, from what it says in the New Testament. They'll just kind of flip over because they want to have the two quotations matching each other. Uh, in the Septuagint, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced exceedingly. That's from the Orthodox City Bible. So it's basically the same thing. And if you go back and... You don't have to take my word for it, but if you got it, if you if you got an interlinear like the Apostolic Polyglot Bible, if you got an interlinear, even though you don't know any Greek at all, and just compared the Septuagint for the Old Testament and Acts to, to what Peter's quoting, it's obvious he's quoting the same thing. It's like if somebody said, "Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death," it's like you know they're quoting from the King James version. You can tell because it's it's, it's a little different. So. So Peter is quoting here pretty clearly from the Septuagint. Now, what, what difference does it make? Why is that important to me? Well, Peter is quoting a number. He's quoting and he's alluding to a number of prophecies. And I want to read whatever he's quoting. I want to read what he's reading. And actually, there are some Bibles today that are based on the Septuagint. And so I read those. And a few years ago, I started taking Greek so I could read the Septuagint. I want to find out. I want to read what they're reading. So... Uh, so that's what. So when we're looking through prophecies here, I'll be quoting from the, the Septuagint because that's what the apostles use. Am I, am I, am I going to tell Peter, I'm sorry, but you're reading from the wrong translation of Scripture. You really need to be reading from something that wouldn't exist for another another thousand years. I don't think I'm going to say that. I'm going to say if that's what Peter's reading, then uh, I'd like to read the same thing. Uh, so he's reading from 
so it's exactly what it says in Psalm 15 in the Septuagint. And uh, so let's go back there. Let's read that. Psalm 15 in the Septuagint, very similar to 16 other Bibles. Preserve me, O Lord, because I hope in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I, you have no need for, uh, of my good things to the saints on his earth, and in them he magnified all his will. Their diseases were multiplied. They hastened after these things. I will not join in their assemblies of blood, nor will I remember their names with my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You are he who restores my inheritance to me. Uh, Portions fell to me among the best, and my inheritance is the very finest. I will bless the Lord who caused me to understand. Moreover, until night, my reins also instructed me. I saw the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced exceedingly. My flesh also shall dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You made known to me the ways of life. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. At your right hand are pleasures forever, forevermore. And at the top of this, it says a pillar of description by David. So David is the one who's writing this. And he's saying, you will not uh, leave my soul in Hades. Uh, and you will not uh, abandon my soul in Hades, nor will you let, let my body see decay. So Peter says, Peter says that uh, this is referring to Christ. Um, a few things we can learn from this psalm here that Peter quotes and applies to Jesus. One is, if you're reading in a Bible where the Old Testament is based on the Masoretic text, it will say, you will not leave my, whole, my, my, my soul in Sheol, which is the Hebrew word. The Greek word is Hades, which is what Peter is quoting, quoting here. Mm -hmm. So Sheol and Hades, it tells you right off the bat, they're the same thing. Two different languages, same thing. That's the place where the dead go awaiting final judgment. Jesus mentions that in Luke 16, where he says, uh, uh, the beggar died, this is the story of rich man and, and Lazarus, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. So the rich man and Lazarus both are in, they can, they can see and communicate with each other, they're, 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 it says specifically that the uh, the rich man is in is in Hades there, so this is the place, the abode where the dead go. It appears that there are two regions, and the angels escort you there. So that's according to what Jesus says in Luke chapter sixteen. So, question for you. I got a few questions now. Uh, between the time that Jesus was crucified and was rose from the dead on the third day, his body was in the tomb. Where was his spirit during that time? Where was his spirit? Okay? And the answer, I think, is right in this passage that we read. You will not leave, you will not abandon my soul, you will not leave my soul in Hades. So Jesus' spirit, like the spirit of the rich man in Lazarus, he was spirit was in Hades, but it wasn't left there. So you will, you're not going to leave me there. You're going to pull me out. And you won't let my body see the case. We're speaking to the spirit and the body of Jesus both. So that's where it seems to me pretty clear that Jesus was in Hades during that time. 
Uh, and I think of, of a bunch of other scriptures I think about in connection with that. In, in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus talks about as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Doesn't sound like heaven to me. Okay. Part of the earth? I don't think so. So Hades, whether Hades physically is in the heart of the earth, nobody knows what's in the heart of the earth. Okay. Nobody's penetrated anywhere near the heart of the earth. So nobody knows what. But that's the expression that Jesus used. He said he would be in the heart of the earth. It doesn't sound like a grave, you know, a little tomb on the side of, a, of the hill there. He'd be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Uh, and I also think about 1 Peter 3. We hit this when we're going through uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.19. It said that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. Early Christians understood that. He descended into Hades and he preached to the spirits there. Uh, recently, we're talking about the idea of the resurrection of the dead in our group here. And I got a question afterward from somebody who was, who was visiting with us. And I thought it was a really good question. And the question was... What about what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? This day you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, think about that. Turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 39. I thought it was a really good question. So Luke 23, verse 39, verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed and saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive due reward for our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So wait a minute. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That sounds like he's going straight to heaven, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe not. We know from what Peter said, that Jesus was in Hades. Jesus said he was in the heart of the earth. The early Christian understanding of what happened with Jesus between the time that he died and he was resurrected, about him being in Hades, is captured in the Apostles' Creed, one of the most ancient statements of the Christian faith. Those of us who are from Catholic or maybe Lutheran or other backgrounds where you attended churches where they recited the Apostles' Creed, be familiar with this. The structure of the Apostles' Creed is, it's set up as like a baptismal creed. I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Spirit, three parts of the creed here. And in the second part, I believe in the Son. In talking about the Son, it says in the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to Hades, or to the lowermost parts. Uh, I've seen it expressed also. And then he rose again on the third day. So this idea that Christ descended to Hades is, in, is, is captured in this really ancient basic statement of the Christian faith. And for those who want to know more about this, uh, this whole idea that Christ descended into Hades and what happens after you die. I encourage you to take a look at the Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, which is edited by David Brousseau. There are two, artic two good articles in there. One is on descent into Hades, and the other one is on dead, the intermediate state of the dead. I encourage you to take a look at the early Christian quotes in those two articles, and then go back and look at the scriptures and see if what the early Christians understood, in fact, is exactly what the scriptures say. Now, I want to share with you a few quotes from some early Christians that I found particularly helpful 
to understand this, to get a grasp of, of their understanding of what happened to Jesus after he died. The idea that he would go to Hades, but he wouldn't remain there. First quote is from Justin Martyr. Justin was a philosopher. He was a convert to the Christian faith, originally from Samaria. And he's writing around the year 160 A.D. in uh, dialogue with Trypho. So this is, a, this is a discussion he's having with Trypho, who's a Jew, to try to bring Trypho to the faith. And so from, from that uh, work, it's, uh, here's the, the quote goes, So likewise, Christ declared that ignorance was not on his side, but on theirs. That's referring to his opponents. Who thought that he was not the Christ, but fancied they would put him to death, and that he, like some common mortal, would remain in Hades. This is from uh, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with, uh, with Trypho, a Jew, chapter 99, which is found in Nicene Fathers, volume 1, page 248. And continuing with another quote from Justin, For I choose to follow not men or men's doctrines, but God and the doctrines delivered by him. For if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but do not admit this truth, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. I thought after reading that the first time, whoa, don't imagine that they are Christians. For years, I believed that when you die, you go straight to heaven. And Justin's attitude here is that the people who believe that, they're not, they're not, they're the heretics. So this is the, 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 the source here. This is Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho again, chapter 80, and Nicene Fathers, volume 1, page 239. So uh, this is, uh, although a lot of Christians believe when you die, you go straight to heaven. In the, in the, uh, the early church, they'd be considered a heretic. If you didn't believe in, you'd, you'd descend to Hades just like Christ did and, and be resurrected. I want to, uh, to to close really here with a much longer quote from Irenaeus. Irenaeus is writing around the year 180. Irenaeus is very interesting to me because Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp uh, in his youth, and Polycarp was taught originally by the, the apostle John. So he's uh, Irenaeus is one human link removed from the apostles themselves. So this is a quote from Irenaeus talking about Christ and and what happened to Christ after he died, what's going to happen to us. Uh, So he says, For they do not choose to understand that if these things are as they say, the Lord himself, in whom they profess to believe, did not rise again upon the third day, but immediately upon his expiring on the cross, undoubtedly departed on high, leaving his body to the earth. So he's talking here, uh, Irenaeus is talking about the, the heretics, who don't believe that you go to Hades, who believe that your body is left behind, you go straight to heaven. He continues, But the case was that for three days he dwelt in the place where the dead were, as the prophet says concerning him, and the Lord remembered his dead saints who slept formerly in the land of sepulcher, and he descended to them to rescue and save them. And the Lord himself says, As Jonah remained three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And of course, that's Matthew twelve forty. Then also the apostle says, But when he ascended, what is it but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? That's from Ephesians 4, 9. This too David says, When prophesying of him, And you have delivered my soul from the lowest Hades. And that's actually from Psalm 
86, verse 13. And on his rising on the third day, he said to Mary, who was the first to see and to worship him, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the disciples and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father. That's from uh, John 20, verse 17. If then the Lord observed the law of the dead, that he might become the first begotten from the dead, and tarried until the third day in the lower parts of the earth, referring to Ephesians 4, 5, then afterwards rising in the flesh, so that even he showed the prints of the nails to his disciples, he thus ascended to the Father, if all these things occurred, I say, how must these men not be put to confusion who allege that the lower parts refer to this world of ours, but that the inner man, leaving the body here, ascends to the super-celestial place. Of course, that's referring to heaven. Uh, Irenaeus continues, For as the Lord went away in the midst of the shadow of death, that's a reference, uh, uh, Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, uh, the sh- uh, although I walk in the shadow, valley of the shadow of death, where the souls of the dead were, Yet afterwards arose in the body, and after the resurrection was taken up into heaven, it is manifest that the souls of his disciples also, upon whose account the Lord underwent these things, shall go away into the invisible place allotted to them by God, and there remain until the resurrection, awaiting that event, then receiving their bodies and rising in their entirety, that is bodily, just as the Lord arose." They shall come thus into the presence of God. Now listen to this. For no disciple is above his master, but every one that is perfect shall be like his master. That's from Luke 6.40. As our master, therefore, did not at once depart, taking flight to heaven, but awaited the time of his resurrection prescribed by the Father, which had been also shown forth through Jonah, and rising again after three days was taken up to heaven, so ought we also to await the time of our resurrection, prescribed by God and foretold by the prophets, and so rising be taken up as many as the Lord shall account worthy of this privilege. It's the end of the quote. And this is from Irenaeus's Against Heresies, Book 5, Chapter 31, Found in Anonicene Fathers, Volume 1, Pages 560 and 561. So, just wrapping this up here, a few takeaways from the insights of the early Christians regarding Hades. First of all, those who believe that when we die, our bodies are left here in the tomb permanently, and our spirits go straight to heaven, they were considered the heretics in the early church. The second thing is, Jesus was in the lower parts of the earth, Hades, for three days, just as he said he would be in Matthew chapter 12. And when he arose, this is from Irenaeus, he told Mary not to hold on to him because he had not yet ascended to the Father. I thought that was a a great insight from, from, from the Gospels. So clearly, Jesus was not in heaven right after his death. He had not yet ascended to the Father, even after he rose from the dead. So he obviously he did not meet the thief of the cross in heaven right, right after immediately after he died. 
So when he said to the thief on the cross, I tell you this day I'll be, uh, you'll be with me in paradise, whatever that means, it didn't mean that he, that he was going to be going straight to heaven and that the thief was going to meet him there straight in heaven. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it, what it meant, uh, but there, there, I can think of two possibilities. One is that we are, we're putting the comma in the wrong place. I've seen some people uh, claim that. Meaning, we say, I tell you this day, comma, you will be with me in paradise. So if you, if you move the comma over, of course, there are no commas in, uh, in the ancient Greek text. That's one possible. The other one is the paradise where he met, where he would meet the, the, uh, the, the thief who repented on the cross would be referring to the better region, the better part of Hades. You know, in Luke 16, it talks about the, the two regions of Hades where the, the rich man and Lazarus were in each and a different one that he, Jesus would be meeting him in paradise, be referring to Hades. Uh, and I love this statement by Irenaeus uh, in, in drawing from Luke chapter 6, a student is not above his teacher. So he says, look, if the best that we can do as students of Jesus is to follow the pattern established by our teacher. So if Jesus himself didn't go straight to heaven on his death, but he went to Hades and then was resurrected and then bodily ascended to heaven. If student, the best that we can do is, as his students is to follow in his footsteps and follow the pattern established by him. So if we if we want to know what's going to happen to the faithful Christians when we die, we look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We look to his example. So here's what we can expect, that, that when we die, our spirit, while our body is, is waiting in the grave, our spirits will descend to Hades when we die, awaiting the resurrection, just as Peter says his was in Acts chapter 2, where he quoted from Psalm 16. And secondly, is that upon the return of Jesus, when the resurrection occurs for us, there will be a physical resurrection of the dead, just as Jesus was raised as described in Luke 24, and as Paul says will happen to us in 1 Corinthians 15 throughout the whole chapter. And then finally, in the end, that we will bodily assume our spirits and bodies united, our bodies transformed, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, that we will, we, that we will in the end, be able to ascend bodily to heaven as Jesus did. And the wonderful thing is that of all the people on the face of the earth, the Christians are the only ones who really understand what happens after we die. Because Jesus lived it out, explained it all by his own example for us. That if we're faithful, that's what we can look forward to. So um, this all comes from the first, uh, the first prophecy that Peter is, is talking about in connection with the resurrection from Psalm 16 that you will not leave my uh, soul in Hades, you will not let my body see corruption. Of course, this applied to Jesus. It did not apply to David. Jesus is the seed of David. He's the descendant of David that this prophecy was intended for. And I look forward in the next lesson, we'll talk about several more prophecies related to the resurrection. Amen.